Welcome to the Antioch Austin podcast. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you. For more information about Antioch Austin, please check our website at AntiochATX.com. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back in Austin. J.D., thanks for the introduction. He is inspired by my preaching and my hair. He already made that joke on himself, though, so it's kind of hard to go there. But I am excited to be with you all this morning. I did want to take a minute and introduce to you my family. So there's a picture of us on the screen. My wife, Lacey, and I have been married for 11 years. I know, I still look 25, but we've been married for 11 years. We have three amazing kids. My son, AJ, is eight. My daughter, Ari, is six. And we have another little one, Juniper. She is two years old. Something important about our family is that for five years, we lived in the Himalayas. And so I think I got a picture of that as well. Uh, We ran a coffee shop in the capital city, and we would take adventures out into rural areas to meet people in villages for discipleship, to share the gospel, had the time of our life. And and in 2017, we moved back to Waco. And I've been in the role of young adult pastor since then and loving every minute of that as well. So that's who I am. And again, thank you for having me. I want to talk to you this morning. I just need to get this out of the way just a little bit. I want to talk to you this morning about fear. And as a part of your summer revival series, more specifically, I want to talk to you about what fear will keep you from. Because fear will keep you from revival. And fear will keep you from stepping into the gap that God has called you to fill. Anybody ever asked you to fill in? Maybe, you, maybe you're at your office and, and, and your coworker did most of the work on the project and the presentation, but they called in sick and now you have to fill in, right? You never like that call. Comes the night before. A few weeks ago in Waco, I got the call on a Friday night. Now, Friday's my day off and Saturday's my day off. Friday night, I get the call that I might need to fill in and preach on Sunday morning. You don't want that call. Sometimes we have to stand in the gap. We got to fill in. Explain it this way. In in high school, I was a pole vaulter. I was a pole vaulter because I played football. Let me explain. My football coach said, if you want to play football in the fall, you had better run track and get in shape in the spring. That's how it worked. Now, I tried to circumvent this process by playing tennis one year. My football coach said, congratulations, you just made the tennis and the track team. So that didn't work. And so I thought, well, if I have to run track, I will pick the most obscure, uh, random, low commitment event that I can, and I found pole vaulting. My school did not have a pole vaulting program. We did not have a pole vaulting coach. We had a pole vaulting pad and some pole vaulting poles from the 1980s. And so for track practice, I would wander up and down one side of the track, you know, testing my poles, stretching a few more times, while my teammates down at the other end were running sprints and laps and miles. But I didn't get away with it because coach knew that I had time on my hands. Ten minutes into every track meet, after heat heat one, I was done. Because again, no, no program. I was not good at pole vaulting. I was one try, two tries, out of the competition, and it's nachos and hanging with my friends for the rest of the day. And so one day, I hear that there's a few injuries in our track team, and the coach is looking for me to stand in the gap, looking for me to fill in. And so I made my way out of the stadium, into the parking lot, and sunk down beneath the back seat in the bus, but coach found me. He asked me... 
to run the 300-meter hurdles. Now, I had never ran a hurdle in my life. Now he wants me to run 300-meter hurdles. So I ran, and then he said, I also need you to run the two-mile later in the day. All that uh, skipping out on track practice now catching up with me. So I ran the 300-meter hurdles. I got third place. I was feeling pretty good about myself. Later that day, I ran the two-mile, and I got fifth place out of five people. (laughs) And I got overlapped by first and second and third and fourth place. In fact, I was so bad at at the two-mile that they had to postpone the next event because I still had a few more laps while everybody watched me struggle around the track. Sometimes... You may be asked or called upon to stand in a gap that you don't necessarily feel prepared to stand in. Sometimes you get asked to fill in and you may not feel ready. And in actuality, you may not think you're ready. But when a door opens, will you be afraid to step in? And the people of God in the story we're going to read today in 1 Samuel are looking for someone to stand in the gap. The people of God live in in this area that we're going to read in the Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 9. They live in the promised land. This is the land that God has given them, but they are surrounded by enemies, enemies who attack them, invade them, oppress them, rob them. Not only that, they have enemies within because they routinely struggle with injustice. They're unjust toward the poor in their community. They have immorality and and sexual sin and all kinds of other garbage comes into their society. And they struggle with idolatry. They worship and pursue other gods beside the one true God. And because of this sin, this immorality in their life, because of the enemies that are around them, they find themselves in a perpetual cycle of sin and brokenness. And from time to time, a leader will come along who will lead the people back to God, back to a place of security. But after a generation, they will fall right back into that cycle of sin and brokenness. And this continues for hundreds of years. It's what the book of Judges is all about. But finally, the people of God have had enough. They want something different. So they go to their leader, Samuel, who is a prophet and a priest, and they ask Samuel, the prophet, and they ask God for something that they've never had. They ask him for a king. Now, as an American, you may be wondering why anybody would want a king. We don't do the whole kingship thing. That was American Revolution, done and dusted. We don't need kings. But if you would have seen things the way that people in the ancient world saw them, you might understand. And to help illustrate this, I want to show you this diagram. And it says in this diagram, we've got a little triangle here. And at the top, you see God. And God's ways are good. He is all-powerful. He is mighty. He is right. But God was mysterious. And for the people of God, though God's spirit was moving on the earth, his Holy Spirit did not live in the hearts and minds of people as he does today because of Jesus, because of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so for the people of God, sometimes there was a perceived distance. What was God really up to? How would God save them? What was God speaking? Not only that, but also in this ancient equation was the world. And specifically the chaos of the world. And in the ancient time, that might mean famine or disease or illness. And to navigate all of this, what the people wanted was a king to stand in the gap. You see, it was the king's job to know the ways of God. Especially the kings of Israel, during their time on the throne, they would rewrite out a copy of the law. They were obligated, expected to know the ways of God so they could mediate between God and his people so that they could lead the people of God in navigating the brokenness and the chaos of a world. 
You understand? This is where we are. This is the type of man that the people of Israel are asking for in 1 Samuel chapter 9. And it's in this context that we meet our character, a man named Saul. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, that there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacharoth, son of Apia, a Benjamite, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, a man of wealth. And this man, it says in verse 2, had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. Now, that's probably not too hard to imagine as you look at me on stage, all right? If, if JD was up here, you'd have to do a little more mental work to make that leap, okay? But it says that he was a handsome young man. In fact, it says there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he from his shoulders Upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, you may notice that we're putting emphasis on his physical appearance, and that's because it is very rare in the Bible that someone is physically described. Think about it. Do you remember where the verses are that talk about how Jesus looked? What about Mary, Peter, Paul, Joseph, Abraham, Noah? Their physical description is not important because their appearance is not important for the rest of the story. And so when the Bible mentions someone's physical appearance, I promise you, you read, you do your work. It is because it is vital and important for the rest of that story. And so when the Bible tells us that Saul is a handsome man and that he is taller than anyone else in his nation, heads and shoulders above anyone in his nation, those details are going to be important for the rest of the story. Not only is Saul handsome, not only is he tall, he's also on a mission. Let's read verse 3. It says, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. I saw some of y'all coming in late. That's okay. I'm sure it's the donkeys got out again, right? We just (laughs) struggles, right? So it says, Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and get up and go look for the donkeys. And the Bible tells us that Saul travels far and wide to look for his father's donkeys. Maybe not what you get sent out of the house for when you were growing up. But he goes all over the country and he cannot find these donkeys. But what he does find is a prophet, a priest, a man named Samuel. And it just so happens that Samuel is also on the hunt. Samuel, you remember, has been tasked with looking for a king. And it just so happens that the day before Saul goes out to look for donkeys, God has spoken to the prophet Samuel and said, about this time tomorrow, a man from the tribe of Benjamin will come. This is the man that I've chosen to be king. Lo and behold, the next day, as Samuel is looking for this man, here comes Saul looking for donkeys. And God says, this is the man I've chosen as king of my people. And just like that, Saul goes out to get donkeys. He comes home with a kingdom. Guys, you know you send your wife into ATB. You're like, I just need, we need pickles. Just get pickles. My wife will come out with two gallons of ice cream and an eggplant, right? Saul here goes to look for donkeys, and he comes back with a kingdom. And who else would you want to stand in that gap? Who else would you want to mediate between God and man but somebody who is head and shoulders taller than anyone in the nation? Who else would you want to stand in that gap but someone who is more handsome, more physically intimidating than Saul? There is nobody like him. There's just one problem. King Saul is afraid. And his fear will paralyze him from day one. Let's read in the next chapter, chapter 10, verse 20. It says, Samuel the prophet 
brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Now, casting lots is kind of like rolling dice today. It was a random way of making a choice, but actually the people believed they would pray that God would anoint this process, and so they're casting lots to choose, to confirm what Samuel has already decided. It says, as they cast lots, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by its lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near, and the clan of the Madarites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So now, whom Samuel has appointed, this process ordained by God has confirmed that Saul is the true king. And look what it says. At his crowning moment, literally, it is Saul's crowning moment. And the Bible says in verse 20, excuse me, in in verse 21, when they sought him, He could not be found. It is his crowning moment, and he is MIA. And it says in verse 22 that they asked the Lord, is there a man still to come? Should we look for someone else? And look how the Lord answers. Behold, he has hidden himself in the baggage. He has hidden himself in the baggage. In the baggage, it was a festival. There would have been tents and sleeping bags and food and gifts. And Saul, rather than meet his moment of destiny, has hidden himself in the baggage. I wonder if there's anybody in the house that's maybe spent some time hiding in the baggage. You may wish that some of your elected officials would go hide in the baggage from time to time. I wouldn't blame you for wishing that. But it's not the destiny for someone called to be king. It's not the destiny of someone called to be a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And look what it says. They go in verse 23. They ran and they took him from there. And when he stood among his people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Again, the Bible is reminding us that he is taller than anyone from the shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Look at this dude. There is none like him in all, among all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. So now, just to recap, Saul has been found by Samuel. He's been chosen by God, and he's been approved of by the people. And yet Saul is still very much afraid, and this fear will paralyze him for the rest of his life. And you may be thinking, well, that's not fair. Saul is just out to look for donkeys, and then he's on the throne the next day. I mean, who would be ready for that? You'd have a good argument. Maybe Saul was just humble. Maybe he recognized the task that was at hand, and he was just approaching it from a place of humility. But if if that's what you're thinking, you don't understand humility because humility will never call on you to abandon your responsibility. Only fear will lead to that decision. Humility will never ask you to abandon your responsibility. Only fear will do that. We lived in the Himalayas, and in the capital city, we had a coffee business, and in this coffee business um, is something I did not want to get into. Uh, through, Through a story I could explain, it would take time. God made it very clear through impossible things, uh, that, that um, we were supposed to start this coffee business. And up to this point in my life, I had exactly zero hours of business training and or experience. I had not even been a waiter. I had uh, zero hours 
of coffee know-how, of how to make coffee, of how to market coffee. In fact, I could count on my hands the number of coffees I'd had in my life as a 23-year-old. And here I feel clearly beyond any shadow of a doubt that God is asking me to start a coffee business. And he began to open doors through big investors. We were excited, but I was afraid at, at the same time. And to be real honest with you, it was one of those, okay, Lord, okay, Lord, you've got to drag me. I'll do it if you make me. I was reluctant. I was looking for the window to dive out of during this whole process. But humility will never ask you to walk away from a door that God has opened. Only fear will do that. And, and, and at one point, an investor backed out. Now, God had already made it clear He'd made it clear he was providing the way, but then an investor backed out, a big investor. And rather than be disappointed, I was relieved. I was like, let's worship because I don't have to do this now. Yeah, yeah, God, you made it obvious I'm supposed to do this, but the investor backed out, so obviously we're out. And no, 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 God continued to open those doors. I continued to try to run from them because of fear. And it wasn't a week after that investor backed out that somebody put a check for almost $10,000 in my pocket for this business. God was not only opening the doors. How many of you ever feel like, God, you didn't just open this door, but like you punted me through it, right? That's how we felt. And I could not know then that investing in that coffee shop in, 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 in the middle of a capital city right next to a Buddhist, the largest Buddhist shrine in our country, uh, like, you know, if you've ever seen like uh, seven years in Tibet or, or, or been in the Himalayas, the monks in red robes coming by the thousands to march around this, this holy site right by the doors of our coffee shop. I couldn't imagine the place of investment and influence that God would give us. I couldn't imagine that our greatest impact in our time overseas would be in just a small handful of staff that we worked next to learning how to make coffee, learning how to sell coffee. And because of fear, I wanted to walk away from the door that God was opening. But humility will never ask me to make that decision. Only fear will. I wonder what doors God's trying to open in your life. And what's your response? This fear in Saul's life will continue to deepen. It will lead him to full-blown paranoia, insanity, and ultimately it will end up in his ruin. His fear will cause him not only to abandon and abdicate his responsibility, but on the other hand, at times he will overstep his boundaries. How many of you know that fear can lead to either extreme? You might be passive or very aggressive. It could lead to either extreme. In fear of a relational conflict, you might not want to say anything. You might want to crawl under the covers and hide forever. Or you might become so accusatory, so aggressive, because you're so afraid of letting someone speak into your life. How many of you know that fear can paralyze you and you might not feel like you can show up to work? You might not feel like you can show your face in the front of the person who you owe a bill to. Or fear can drive you to the other extreme that you become such a workaholic, so obsessed with the control you have over your finances that you've got a death grip and you're not letting God in the equation. Fear can take you to either extreme. You might abandon your responsibility or it might cause you to overstep your bounds. And that's what happens to King Saul. On one occasion, he is, uh, he is given a specific order by God that he disobeys. He disobeys this order, and it will cost him everything. And in fact, the prophet who appointed him, the prophet Samuel, comes to him in chapter 15. The prophet Samuel comes to him in chapter 15 after Saul has disobeyed. And look what the prophet says in verse 17, chapter 15, verse 17. Samuel, the prophet, said to this giant of a man, though you are little in your own eyes. 
You know what your problem is? Most handsome, most tall. There's not anybody who's as much of a giant as you are. Do you know what your problem is? You are small in your own eyes. It's as though you were small in your own eyes. Are not you the head of the tribes of Israel? Has not God made you the king of Israel? But you're small in your own eyes. And how many of you know that if you were small in your own eyes, there's not a job, there's not a spouse, there's not a family, there's not a trophy, there's not a place in life to which you can arrive that will cure you of being small in your own eyes. That's insecurity. I know about this because it's a struggle. It's a struggle. I feel insecure. I don't feel up to the things that God has called me to, and it's a battle. Most of my time with God in the morning, almost every day, I I start with these questions. God, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Do you know why I ask God that question? Because I forget. Because I'm small in my own eyes, and I need him to tell me who I am. And so I will ask that question in prayer, and I will sit quietly and allow the Holy Spirit to bring thoughts to my mind, and I'll write them down like I've never heard them before. Even though he tells me the same thing almost every day. You are mine. I am proud of you. I am with you. You have what it takes. It's like I hear that again and again and again. And you might think that, gosh, I just want to hear something profound. But actually what we need is to profoundly hear something very simple, that you are his. Because when you understand that at a deep level, you won't struggle with being small in your own eyes. Saul, the king, is little in his own eyes. And his response, his response to the prophet is this in verse 24. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Because what? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. You remember our diagram? You remember where Saul was supposed to stand? You remember how he was supposed to hear the voice of God and lead the people of God in confronting a broken world? But now because of his fear, this this diagram, this paradigm is is upside down. And, And now Saul, rather than listening to God, is afraid of the people. And as a result of obeying the people's voice, he has lost his connection to a holy God and he has no answer for the pain and the chaos of a broken world. And on the heels of this story, the kingdom will be ripped from his grasp until once again for the people of Israel, there is no one standing in the gap. There is no one standing in the gap. And let me ask you this about your life. If you're not standing in the gap that God has called you to fill, who or what is? That's a scary, scary question. Families, from a real messed up parent, leveling with you if we're not standing in the gap even though we routinely mess it up even though we routinely don't do it right even though we routinely get angry and frustrated and feel like we're never put together families if we're not standing in the gap for our kids who or what is enter a little boy from the sheep pasture named david And the next story that we come to is a story you probably know well. It's the story of David and Goliath. There's just one problem with the story of David and Goliath. It's not David's story. At least it is not supposed to be. Look what it says as these two armies, the army of God's people, Israel, and the army of the Philistines meet for battle, ready for the showdown. It says in verse 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 17, the Philistines stood on one side of the mountain and Israel stood on the other side of the mountain with a valley in between them, verse 4, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, a champion named Goliath. 
He was a giant of a man. And instead of the two armies facing one another, they send out one champion. And what's interesting about this word champion is that if you translate it literally in the Hebrew, do you know what it means? It means the man of the in-between space, the man of the gap. And so it literally reads, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a man of the in-between whose name was Goliath of Gath, and he was a giant. And if only Israel had a giant. Man, if only Israel had a man who, I don't know, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in their nation. If only Israel had a man who was called and ready and appointed to stand in that in-between space. Oh, they do have that man. His name is Saul. Where is he? He is afraid. Look what it says in verse 10. It says that the Philistines said, I have defied the ranks of Israel this day. I curse God and his people. That is what the Philistine, this giant, is saying as he stands in the gap that Saul is called to fill. And it says this, give me a man that we may fight together. And in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed. And you guessed it, they were greatly afraid. And the Bible tells us that for 40 days, for 40 days, Saul listens twice a day, 80 times. This giant, this champion comes and stands in the place that God has called Saul to stand. And he curses Saul and he curses his people. And Saul yet is afraid. And meanwhile, David's not even supposed to be there. Do you know why David came to the battle? Because Saul was 40 days late and the people ran out of food. And David's father, Jesse, sends Saul to, or sends David to the battle lines with snacks for his brothers, right? Some orange slices and some Capri Sun for halftime because this is going on too long. And just like that, Saul will go to the battle to bring snacks. Excuse me, David will go out to bring his brothers snacks and he will come home with a kingdom. Look what it says in verse, where are we? Verse 22. As David arrives on the scene, it says David left the things. He left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to ranks to greet his brothers. It says things and it says baggage. It's the same word and it's the same idea. You know what David does with the baggage? He leaves it behind. And already we see there's a very real difference between David and Saul. One hides in the baggage and one leaves the baggage behind because he sees a story ripe for the taking. He sees a story right for the taking. You know how this ends. Saul will give David his armor. Do you remember that? You take my armor and you go do my job, right? How ironic. The, the, the thing is, Saul's armor, it doesn't fit, right? It's too big for David. It's too big for David. He can't use it. The huge irony in this is that Saul's armor is too big for him. He's been given an opportunity, a call by God, a mantle that he refuses to fill. And not only does he give away his armor, but he gives away his story. He gives away his legacy. He gives away his kingdom. By the next chapter, chapter 18, verse 7, the women and the people of the nation are already singing a new song. It says that the women, after the battle, the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. He doesn't just give away his armor. He doesn't just give away his kingdom. He gives away his story because he won't stand in the gap that God has called him to fill. How many of you are hungry for a story? for something that God's called you to and are you willing to go after it? Are you willing 
to leave the baggage behind and run into the door that God's opening to you. I believe that as I'm preaching, there's stories that are coming to mind and decisions that you're facing right now and relationships right now that need work. And instead of running, maybe today is that you walk out of the baggage and you run into the gap. You know, because we lived overseas, people will often ask me, how did you make up your mind to do that? How did you decide that you would go and live overseas? How was it obvious to you? My wife and I have different stories because we were just dating at the time that we felt this call, but I was 20 years old, took a summer off to go to the Northwest Himalayas, a vastly Muslim area, and we would go into rural villages, mud homes with little tin roofs, and we would just go in and try to share with people. We found ourselves in a district where we were staying with one family. This household was believers, and to our knowledge, although there were hundreds of thousands in the district in different villages all around us, these were the only believers in that governmental district. And so we'd spend our days going out, going to and fro, trying to talk with people and have tea with people and share stories. And we would run into people that didn't speak English. They didn't speak the, the language we were learning. They didn't speak the languages of our translators. And we were thinking, how do we get Jesus to these people? And, and I remember one evening as we came home and we're staying with this family, uh, they, they did all the, the, no plumbing, no anything. So we'd actually have to go out to the stream out back to brush our teeth. And as sun is setting, I'm going outside, right? No electricity. You got to take care of your business before it gets dark. And so I'm going outside to brush my teeth, to get ready for the evening, and the sun is setting. And that's important because as the sun is setting in this valley, it illuminates the villages on every hillside. I couldn't see them before. But remember, the, the houses were made of these metal roofs, and as the sun hit them in just the right angle, it illuminated. These metal roofs would just sparkle in the sun, and I could see a cluster of 20 homes on that hillside, and, and then 10 more on that ridge, and then 15 more behind that, and then 100 homes on that slope. But it was a four days walk, and I don't know how we were going to get there, and we didn't have time to get to them, or them, or them, or them. And the lostness and the bigness of the gap just hit me. And I thought, God, God, what can I do? And I don't know if I was called or if I just volunteered, but I said, God, I cannot do anything else but give my life to see that these people who've never even heard your name know who you are, know that you're good, know that you're able, know that there is hope. And it was that moment of realness with God, looking at the hugeness of the gap that led to my family going overseas. That led to my family coming back from overseas and Lord willing, going out somewhere sometime again. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. We lived in a nation uh, of, I couldn't even go into that. I, I can tell you on one occasion, uh, we were on our fourth story apartment in the middle of a Saturday when a 7.9 earthquake started rocking our nation. It killed 9,000 people. It tore down hundreds of thousands of homes. And as I'm standing in the doorway, because I can't stand without holding myself up, as the building shakes for 90 seconds, and we think it's coming down on top of us, and I'm screaming, Jesus, 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 what else can you do? And you're holding a three-year-old and a five-year-old in your arms, and you're hoping the building doesn't come down. And I remember in the aftermath of that, thinking, what am I doing? What, what am I thinking putting my family here? A few months later, we were on our way out to a rural village, no plumbing, no water, four-hour hike up the mountain, off the road, four-hour off-road drive just to get to that point, eight hours from the capital city. We wake up early one morning in the village with no plumbing, no electricity, and my wife wakes me up and she says, I'm having a miscarriage. She was 20 weeks pregnant. 
We call the doctor. We, our phones don't work. We climb up the mountain a little ways, use a satellite phone, call the doctor. Back in the capital, she says, if you're describing this right, this is absolutely a miscarriage. There's nothing I can do for your baby. But for your own care as a mother, you need to get back down for hygiene so that we can clean you and take care of you back down to the capital city as fast as you can. And I remember hiking down that mountain with my kids in my arms while my wife walked down weeping in front of me, thinking, what am I doing? How did I get here? What have I brought my family into? That baby lived, by the way. She's two and a half years old. But I remember in the fear, I remember the panic, I remember the what am I going to do? What am I going to say to our grandparents? What am I going to say to friends back home? What am I doing, God? And God took me back to that field and that sunset and said, didn't you say that you'd stand in the gap? Didn't you say you'd give everything? I was standing in the gap. Didn't feel pretty. I very seldom felt like I was winning. But like David, I said, I will stand in the gap. You know, David killed that giant with one stone. You know how many he took to the battle? A little Bible trivia. Took five stones. You know why? Because he didn't have a guarantee. He didn't have a promise that it was going to be easy. He had faith. He was expected. But he took five stones. Because he didn't have a guarantee. But he had a willingness to stand in the gap no matter what it cost. What if I told you that standing in the gap had nothing to do with being unafraid? What if I told you that filling the gap, walking through the door that God's called you to stand into, had nothing to do with the absence of fear? It's like when you're jumping off a cliff. If you're waiting for that fear to go away, you'll never jump. What you have to do is say, okay, this fear is real, but I'm jumping anyways. And I feel like this morning, there's some of you who've been hiding in the baggage. And even as I speak, the fear is only rising, but I'm believing that the Holy Spirit is giving you a courage that will overwhelm that fear so that you can step out of the baggage and into the gap. Will you stand with me? Let's stand to our feet. If you're on our prayer team, I want to invite you to come down and be prepared to pray with people. You can go ahead and start coming as I come as I talk. And this morning, I, I said, I think in the room, there's some of you who are facing decisions, and if you really boiled it down, it might be a decision of faith or fear. There's some of you who've got relational stuff that you have not handled because it was easier just to walk away, but maybe God's calling you to step into that gap. There's some of you who've maybe been holding on to sin because you thought that your control is what you needed and that's actually a fear reaction to keep the lid on so that no one sees to take control. But maybe today it's a time to leave the baggage behind so that you can step into the full life of that God has for you. I'm going to pray for us briefly. And as I pray, if you want someone to partner with you in believing to overcome that fear, I want you to come forward and meet with people and let's meet with God. Father, we love you and we bless you. We thank you that in your presence is the fullness of joy. We thank you that perfect love drives out fear. And as we worship you and respond, Holy Spirit, would you drive out fear in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. As we worship, you respond.